This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. Thank you for joining me this afternoon. I have with me uh, Bill Whalen, who is a research fellow at the Hoover Institution and a specialist on California politics. And one of the areas in California politics that he knows very well indeed is the state of education in the largest state within the United States. And so, Bill, uh, thank you for joining me on the Education Exchange. It's my pleasure, Paul. Welcome back to California. So one of the hot issues here in California is the charter school conflict. And around the country, charter schools are under a lot of pressure. Uh, So California's been pretty good over the years. It's got a lot of charter schools. It's got a lot of excellent charter schools. It's sort of one of the pride points of the charter school movement. What's happening to charter schools in California? I'd point to two things, Paul. First of all, one of the reasons why charter schools have done relatively well in California, you're right, uh, is because of the last governor, Jerry Brown. Uh, Jerry Brown, for those not familiar with him, he he was California's longest-serving governor, two two terms of the 1970s and 80s, and he came back uh, and served two terms in the previous decade. Now it's awkward to say that, but now the previous decade. And uh, Brown was also California's oldest governor, Paul, and uh, by the time he came back his second time around, he'd had a lot of experience in governor, including being the mayor of Oakland. Um, there's an old joke that what is a conservative? A conservative is a liberal who's been mugged by reality. Uh, Jerry Brown, as the mayor of Oakland, was kind of mugged by reality. He had an all-male high school yes. when he was mayor of Oakland. Exactly. That was his defining conservative moment, I always thought. It was, but I think he got to see up close the problems with education as a mayor. He just thinks, you see things closely. He recognized revenue problems more closely. Brown was very open to charter schools, much more than the average California Democrat is, much to the frustration of the California Teachers Association. Anyway, Brown was very much a bulwark against any kind of pushes against charter schools in California. So under his watch, they did rather well. And one of the things about California is that the California State Board could, or the state agency that was responsible for charters could overturn local school districts. So any local school district, if it wouldn't give a charter to a an applicant, they could appeal to the state. So that really gave the governor and the state officials a lot of capacity to influence what was going on in the state. But now we are here in the year 2020, Paul, and it's the second year of a new governor, Gavin Newsom, um, who um, is kind of an open book on education in this regard. He is not an opponent of charter schools. He is also not an advocate of charter schools. He owes the California Teachers Association very much, though, because when Newsom was running for governor in 2018, he was running against Antonio Villaraigosa, the former mayor of Los Angeles. And it was very important for Newsom at the time of the lieutenant governor and before that the mayor of San Francisco to really corral Democratic and union support. So the CTA gave him an early endorsement that was important to Brown. And CTA is very good at reminding of people it supports early that they owe him. Very important to Newsom, you mean. Yeah, very important to Newsom, just to corral the education corner and get the high ground on that, the money CTA can put in. Their endorsement is gold because they'll they'll send out letters to you, uh, organize on your behalf. So Newsom found himself in his first year uh, in a position of being beholden to the union. So one of the first things he was faced with was a rewrite of rules in California when it came to the ability to school districts to crack down on charter schools. Newsom gave a little bit to the CTA, but not as much as they would like. He tried to kind of have it both ways. So it's now a little easier to go after charter schools in California, not as much as the unions would like. So one of the subplots to 2020, Paul, is will CTA make another push in the direction of charter schools? 
I don't think that really is the story in California, though, when it comes to charter schools in 2020. The story in California is going to be what happens in Los Angeles in March. Well, before we go to Los Angeles, let me just ask you, if, if California is pretty much what's happening elsewhere, elsewhere charters are holding their own. Yes. They're generally able to keep what they have, but right. they're not getting any more. Right. Uh, some places like Newark, they're actually trying, uh, New Jersey's trying to shut down a few of them, but really the charters that are there are probably okay, but there's not much expansion. You'd say that's the basic story statewide. That's very much statewide for California. It's one of status quo. It's not an advancement. It's not really regression. It's status quo. Um, and that takes us to Los Angeles. Now, what is going on there, Paul? Um, the Los Angeles Unified School District, which is really, I think, the most fascinating school district in California because Los, if California is a nation state, Los Angeles is a nation city. It well, is, isn't it the know, second largest school district in the United second States? Second largest school district with the United States. It's just an enormous operation. I think 110 different languages are spoken, and it really is kind of the United Nations in many regards. And it has a myriad, you know, myriad set of problems facing it. Um, now, within Los Angeles, there has been a fight over charter schools for some time. And the fight is fascinating, Paul, in that it's really high-stakes poker. And on one side, there are charter school advocates, uh, namely a group of uh, very high-profiled, very wealthy uh, Los Angeles individuals, the developer Eli Broad, for example, the former mayor, Richard Reardon, uh, who just don't talk the talk. They walk the walk in education, and they finance campaigns, and they finance candidates, and they find themselves up against the teachers' union. Why does the teachers' union like charter schools? Well, because, for one thing, it's much easier to dispose of a teacher in a charter school than it is in, in a CTA-run school. So it's to them it is a problem. So what is going so on? So hasn't this been going on for years and years, though? It I has, think? but it reaches something of a climax uh, this year, Paul, in this regard. There are seven seats on the board of the LAUSD. Four of them are up for grabs in March. So a majority of the board is going to be voted on in March. Depending on the outcome, you could have a majority of charter school advocates on that seven. In other words, they could win four to three and five to two votes, or it could be a minority. So the stakes could not be higher for the CTA, and the stakes could not be higher for the uh, charter school advocates. But there are a lot of minority voters in Los Angeles, and the minority community is much more supportive of charters than the uh, the white community is. So they are. They are. Aren't they? Don't they have a pretty good chance of uh, winning this election? They have a good shot. But one of the questions, Paul, is how people feel about education in Los Angeles. 2019, besides 2019 being a very interesting year in California vis-a-vis -vis charter schools, it was a very interesting year in California, Paul, vis-a-vis -vis teachers in this regard. You had a teacher strike in Los Angeles. You had a very high-profile teacher strike at Oakland. You had a wildcat strike in in Sacramento. Uh, there are no big walkouts on the horizon, but what that has done is it's left a lot of tensions in many school districts, but it also has CTA, it has the teachers feeling kind of cocky right now because what did they do? They did something that was considered heresy a generation ago. Teachers do not walk out on their schools in the middle of the school year. You don't abandon the classrooms, but they did. They hit the streets and they picketed. It was a very militant operation that they did, but you know what? They won, and so they feel like they occupy the high ground, and so they feel confident right yes, now. Yes, and they of course, are working in the post-Janus era. This is right. where the Supreme Court overturned an earlier decision saying that uh, you no longer have to join the union or have to pay uh, dues tantamount to joining the union if right. you don't want to join the union. And that's now been stripped from the unions in California right. uh, by the Supreme Court of the United States. So 
uh, I think the union leadership is much more eager to get out there and to make sure they mobilize the troops than, than before. Do you see that as a, one of the elements of the story here in California? That's one of the elements of the story that they will certainly mobilize. They will fight. They will fight to the death in Los Angeles to make sure the LEOSD, LEOSD board does not become majority uh, charter. But meanwhile, there is action up in Sacramento. And... Uh, yeah, but before you go to Sacramento, let me just ask you this. It, couldn't there be in that Los Angeles election sort of a reaction to this? So is, is the public really going to let the union go out on strike and and not, uh, you know, um, force them to pay for it when Election Day comes? Well, this is what I'm very curious about. So uh, charter school advocates do not have the same resources as CTA. They don't have the mailing list. They don't have the same they don't have the same pot of pot of money that the CTA does. People ask why the teachers union is so power and cal- powerful in California. Well, there are two reasons why, Paul. One is first of all, they have money that's a self-replenishing stream from union dues. So each year they could come in and throw tens of millions of dollars into campaigns if they want to. And even in non-election years, they're still very aggressive in terms of doing your radio spots and things like that, reminding you that education is important. But the other reason, Paul, is because they occupy a certain kind of high ground in California politics. It's there are certain games that get played in initiative battles in California, Paul, certain kind of things that are that are done just year in and year out. And one of which is if you want to defeat an idea, you trot out a teacher, a nurse, a firefighter, a policeman, and have them say, I think this is a terrible idea. Why? Because these individuals wear the white hats in society. Oh, we like nurses, we like teachers, we like firefighters. These are noble creatures. So CTA understands that teachers occupy this kind of noble image. But you raise a great question. If voters, taxpayers, see that this noble teacher has been out on strike and maybe it's complicated. Keep in mind how much this complicates somebody's life. It's not just that their child misses school days. It means child, it means daycare gets messed up. It means after school gets messed up, it just it completely blows up one's lifestyle because we have working families now. So that is a question going into this election. If I'm on the charter school side of things, how do I advertise against my opponents? Do I try to take on the union? Do I try to make it more personal against teachers? So I think this is going to be in part a reflection on how people do feel about California teachers, especially Los Angeles teachers in that regard. So kind of a litmus test in that. But the union is very well uh, uh, situated to to make demands on the state legislature. Well, it's – look, I, I – I get a lot of pushback when I say this from Democrats in Sacramento, but the legislature, which is majority, super majority controlled Democrats, the Democrats in the legislature are just wholly owned subsidiaries of the California Teachers Association. It is, um, to put it in even more context, basically, California, in terms of politically, California is sort of like Iran in that we are an educational theocracy and that there is one mindset in Sacramento and it is to obey the CTA. And if you, if you, you know, disobey the CTA in some regard, you will, you know, you'll face the consequences of it. You'll get kicked out in a primary if you're also a Democrat. So they do have influence, Paul. And so the question is going to be in 2020, what does CTA want from the governor? What does what legislature? Money. It wants money, but it's going to get money, Paul. Money is not, money is not a problem at the moment. Let me emphasize that at the moment in California, it's just each year, each year revenue pours in thanks to a good economy. I'm not going to credit Donald Trump, but the Trump economy has been very good for California revenue. It's capital gains, it's house sales, it's stock market transactions and things like that. The money is pouring into Sacramento legally because of a measure called Proposition 98. This requires that a minimum of revenues goes into education. 40% of new revenue has to go to schools. So if you look at um, what happened last year at the budget, Paul, uh, the governor gave um, 
the unions what they wanted. Uh, he gave them about $80 billion, which was the Proposition 98 guarantee. But then he did something clever. He dipped into the general fund and found more money. So he magically found about another $3.5 billion to cover a hidden problem, which nobody wants to talk about in Sacramento, and that is rising pension costs. Yeah, that is the other side of the coin. So the revenue is flowing in, but right. at the same time, there are more and more retired teachers. Correct. And there are, and they never funded this uh, retirement program adequately. It, it's sort of like uh, they somebody with a uh, K one account or mm-hmm. uh, case. Is, so they just sort of say, oh. Right. Uh, we'll make it up later on. And now later on it's arriving. Sort of, you know, robbing Peter to pay for Paul in this regard. Now I'm going to steal from a fellow gentleman named David Crane, uh, who is very good on California budget measures. David Crane worked for Arnold Schwarzenegger. He runs a group called Govern for California. And David wants sort of centrist, common sense solutions. And he is very focused on education. And what David uh, pointed out, he wrote a column for the Hoover Institution, the web channel uh, called Eureka. I believe you've written for Eureka too. And what he wrote, I'm going to read the following that he wrote. The 2012 tax hike in California was sold as a temporary tax increase for education. However, more than 100% of the expected revenue increase for schools went to increased school spending on retirement costs. Underscored that on retirement costs. For example, the Fresno Unified School District increased its retirement spending by over 150% of the average expected revenue per student from the tax increase. As one result, teachers in several districts went on strike this year because new revenues diverted instead to retirement costs are not improving their salaries. So here's the problem, Paul. We're shoveling more money than ever ever into education in California. It's now about $17,000 per student, K through 12. So it's not. No, we're not cheaping students here. It's 17000 bucks, but the money is not going to teachers. It's not going to the classrooms as they would like. It's getting diverted into this monster called pensions. And medical care, because yes. medical care costs constantly rise. Right. And the plans that have been agreed to around the country, I assume it's the same in California, are paying an inordinate amount of the costs of medical care Correct. Uh, by the employer, right. whereas in other industries, it's more equally shared between the employer and the employee. But here in the public sector, uh, it's really falling very heavily on the school board. And that means there's no money left over for salaries. So if you and I are going to have a very serious conversation, if you and I were put in charge of California schools, we were kings for a day and we're able to go fix these things. And we sat down and said, what do we do in terms of educational reform? It's pretty simple, Paul. First of all, we'd probably have to look at school district requirements in terms of offering tenure and laying off employees, number one. We're probably going to have to make some cuts here and there, just be a little tougher. But the second thing, and this is what's going to be painful, you would probably have to require school districts to standardize health benefit plans and to means test retirement health insurance subsidies. We just can't simply go on like this. It's analogous to what is going on at the federal level with entitlements. We just The country is going to just go broke doing this. And in California, we can't print money as the federal government can, Paul. So either we're going to have to just keep having boon times where money comes rolling in or what you're seeing, we can get to this in the next topic, uh, the people who want to keep the system as it is are just going to find new ways to get money to come in, which means one thing, tax increases. Well, tax increases are not popular, and they're especially not popular at the local level. Right. So if a school board is going out there and trying to raise some local taxes – they, they may be able to do it in Palo Alto, right? 
but they're not going to be able to do it in most of California. So this was the takeaway from what happened in Los Angeles, Paul. Remember, two things happened. First of all, there was the strike. The strike went on, and eventually the strike was settled, and then a local ballot initiative was put on the ballot. It was a parcel tax, and the idea was to do a parcel tax, tax your property. The proceeds will go to better schools. And what happened? It got skunked. Now, people will say, well, it was a special election, there was low turnout, but no, it got skunked, plain and simple. Well, usually low turnout is good for a bond or a tax referenda because only people that turn out are school employees. So if you can't pass a tax in a low turnout election, you're probably not going to turn it out in a high turnout well, election. This is what was fascinating. So Jerry Brown, the Bassanian Jerry Brown, who was good on charter schools, he did do something which was a little nefarious. He twice went to the ballot as governor, and he increased taxes. He he's very clever about this. First of all, it was an increase on the wealthiest Californians, took them up 1%, and he did it for the sake of schools. They were all going to do this for better public schools, made it a very warm, sympathetic sell, trotted out teachers, and so people went along with it. This was a big development in California, Paul, because the idea was going to the ballot tax increases is really not a very easy thing to do, but Brown sold it. Now, Brown was smart about this. He sold it in 2012 and 2016. What do those have in common? presidential election years, big turnouts, particularly of Democrats in California, it's a tailwind effect. And so he put his tax increases, one was Proposition 30, and it was a, quote, temporary tax increase, but then in 2016, the powers be decided, well, we like the way things are with all this but money. But it's an coming. income tax, right? It's an income tax, And it's right. an income on the rich. I mean, income? it's a tax on the rich, right. so that's easy to sell. Well, that's easy to sell, but the question is, you can't keep sticking it to the rich. Why? There's only so much money there, and guess what? Also, the rich are going to start leaving the state. Well, they actually, have. They, we, this is the latest thing that's just happened this past year. 2019 has been the biggest migration are. out of California. Right. What you're seeing is actually, uh, in terms of population growth, California um, is currently experiencing its slowest population growth since 1900. And you ask why? Well, it's because at least 40,000 people a year are hitting the road and going elsewhere. And anecdotally, I know these people. And some of them are leaving because they're sick and tired of taxation, some because they want to find more affordable housing, but they're going to greener pastures, which means, guess what? Less greed for the state. But now getting back to the tax issue, okay, you could in theory to try sticking it to the rich, and actually there are some in Sacramento who are talking about doing another wealth tax in, uh, in 2022. But what is, uh, what is going to be debated in 2020, and this is the other defining story to get into, uh, it's the idea of re revisiting the fabled Proposition 13 and changing the rules on Proposition 13. And Just and remind our listeners, what to. is Proposition 13? Those people who live outside California don't know what a blessing this is for the people of California who've lived here for a long time. Proposition 13 was passed by the voters of California in 1978. It came two years before Ronald Reagan ran for president. In some regards, it created the ground for Ronald Reagan to run for president. What Proposition 13 did was it put in effect the following rule. Paul Peterson buys a house in California. Paul Peterson pays X amount of dollars for the house in California. Paul Peterson is taxed uh, based on that value of the house, and his taxes can only go up a certain percent each year based on the value of the house at the time he bought it. The value of the house is not adjusted as he owns it. It's locked into the place. Uh, he's locked into it at the point he bought it into. Does it go up by 2% a year? It goes up 2% a year, exactly. But if you change the value of your house each year, Paul, you would probably have to leave California because the house that you bought for maybe $200,000 in 1980 would be worth a couple million dollars in 2020. And you pay taxes as if it's worth $200,000. Plus 2%. Plus 2% each year. So you can That's keep, not very much. It's not much, and it's like having a coal in your paycheck. You can kind of bob along with this. 
But the next person that comes along buys Paul Peterson's house for $2 million. He has to start paying at the $2 million price. This but people don't sell their houses anymore, and they don't move. And well, it gets to be a housing shortage, and we have the homeless here in well, California. means you drive around, for example, parts of lovely old Palo Alto, which is not too far from where we're talking here on the campus of Stanford, and there are people who have been living in those houses for 50 years. And they're not going to leave in part because they're paying wonderful tax rates on their house. It's a part. It's like rent control in, in New York City, if you will. Now, Proposition 13 is twofold, Paul. It applies to both commercial real estate and residential real estate. What the powers, what the California Teachers Association and Democrats in Sacramento want to do is they want to do what's what's called a split roll. And a split roll means that we will go after the business side of Proposition 13 and not touch the the residential side. And why is that? If they touch the residential side of Proposition 13 and said we're going to adjust every home in California to present-day prices, people would flee the straight state, but more importantly, there would be a It'd be the end of the Democratic Party in California. It would be a lynch mob in California. <laughs> it's funny. I, I worked for Governor Wilson, Pete Wilson, back in the 1990s in California, and I learned certain lessons about, uh, about the state, one of which is you don't mess with automobiles. Uh, uh, out came a thing called smog check in the 1980s and 1990s. Cars had to go in and get smog checked, and boy, did people hate it. And new rules got put in the smog check, and people went berserk, and they had rallies at the state capitol. It doesn't happen too often you have rallies at the state capitol. People are rather, you know, apathetic. Well, Sacramento's about a long ways away from San Francisco. It is, and people tend not to pay attention to life in Sacramento, but when you start messing with people's automobiles, it's one of the reasons why Gray Davis, the governor of California, got recalled for Arnold Schwarzenegger, because why? He allowed an increase in the vehicle license fee, a.k.a. the car tax, to go through. So you don't mess with a man's automobile. I'd also argue, though, you don't mess with people's homes. And so I came to Paul Peterson and said, surprise, I'm now paying a tax on your house 10 times on its value. <laughs> you're going to, besides going to Arizona, you're going to probably just, you know, send a pipe bomb to Sacramento. So they won't touch the residential side, but it's a commercial they're going at. And why? There are huge stakes if you go after a, res- a commercial property in California. Under, under the way they've designed it, a, a minimum of the revenue would go to schools, about $12 billion a year. So I mentioned $80 billion is a baseline for this. Now add on another one-eighth of that. So this is high stakes. Here's what's fascinating about it. Proposition 13 has for years been considered the third rail of California politics. A cliche you hear a lot in politics, but it's really true in California. You don't mess with Prop 13. Uh, the California Teachers Union about a decade ago looked into doing this. They had uh, Rob Reiner, uh, the you know the actor, director, and child you know healthcare advocate. He was interested in this too. They actually hired some pollsters to look into it, and they found that it was basically you know toxic. Yeah, but splitting the commercial might be a, not a bad strategy because might, people don't care if the business people pay more taxes. They just don't want to pay more taxes on might, their house. But it's also a nuanced approach in this regard, and that voters first hear that you want to change Prop 13, and they say, "Whoa." They get very reflexive. They think, you know, it's nimbyism, not in my backyard. So this has been polled already, and the polling on it's not very good. It shows that it has about 50% approval. You're going to say, well, wait a second. That sounds good. 50% approval means it wins. Uh Uh-uh. The way initiatives work in California, uh, Paul, you start high and you finish low. In other words, I put an initiative on the ballot, and it's going to start at 70%, and it's going to start dropping down. Why? Because voters are going to start looking at it. Voters tend to be a little skeptical when they look at the ballot anyway. I'll run an opposition campaign, so the idea is to get out before it gets below 50%. So your neighborhood restaurant is going to go out of business because they're going to have to pay this big increase in taxes, and people are going to start feeling sorry for their small businessmen in their town. Correct. So a lot of things are going to happen. First of all, the small businessmen gets affected. Secondly, the states are going to have to go up and down, places like El Camino Real here in Palo Alto. Uh, 
and just track down every business and, and try to reassess them as well. It's going to be rather chaotic. Um, and it just pulls terribly right now. So at 50%, this puts CTA in an awkward position. Do we go ahead with this or not? And the person that really puts an awkward position in is Gavin Newsom, who really doesn't want to do this. Why? He doesn't want to get behind it and take a beating. So Newsom is staying out of it right now. But there's still the demand for more money for teachers. There teachers' is. salaries are not that great, despite the fact that they do have these great benefits, mm -hmm. despite the fact that the pensions will someday be good for teachers. Uh, all of that's in the future or right. off the, you know, not right visible when you go cash your paycheck on so, Friday afternoon. So the, let, right? me throw the, let me throw this back at you then. Show me a state in America where enough is enough. A state that has sat down and said, we have the money to pay teachers what they want, but schools want. Has any state in America achieved this goal? Well, the problem is, is that salaries go up everywhere all the time. And right. teachers' salaries do need to keep pace. And Correct. teachers' salaries have not gone up all that much. Uh, nationwide or in California. They, right. they more or less kept pace. What has gone up has been all this extra stuff. So it's a matter of, you know, redesigning this system so that right. the benefits can go to the young beginning teacher. It, and it some is. places around Florida is actually trying to do that, yep. is trying to concentrate increases in teacher salaries on beginning teachers and, right. and not have all these goodies for people who, who stay on for 50 years. No, you also see uh, some counties are locally trying to address this problem. If the idea is to take a teacher from $50,000 a year to $100,000 a year, that's just not going to happen. So what some counties are doing here in Santa Clara, Santa Clara County, for example, which Palo Alto and Silicon Valley is part of, is you have uh, locals talking about you know tax breaks for teachers and maybe housing credits and things like that, but that creates another set of you know complicated ideas. Does the teacher get the break? What about the cop? What about the firefighter? What about the municipal worker? Who goes first in this? But there are ways around this. But as long as you have a conversation, Paul, about just enough money for schools in California, there's never going to be enough. Plain and simple. It's a gigantic operation, and there's just not enough money to go around. Well, but it's hard to believe that when you see California uh, turning out more and more products and becoming wealthier all the time and the p money pouring, as you said at the beginning of the talk, why isn't all of this money that's pouring in enough? Well, it's just, it's just, not, it's just too large of a state enough for that. $17,000 a student. But yet, apparently, that's not enough. We have to do more for the students. So the other problem... Yeah, one of the things right. is, is we have more people working in education Correct. than ever before. Right. So a lot of the new money that's coming in is not to hire new teachers. Mm -hmm. It's to hire new other people, you know, yeah. whether it's crossing guards or if it's bus drivers or it's, uh, whoever is sitting in these administrative offices. There's a huge increase in the number of people in our educational system who are not teaching but are getting paid. Right. Another, another complication in California is special education, Paul. Uh, there's a vast increase in number of students in special education now in California, so that's siphoning money into different directions. Um, so that factors into this as well. Uh, you're right, a large infrastructure as well in California, so it's just not a simple matter of saying, okay, I'm going to give you $10 billion more billion, so it's going to go straight in the classroom. It goes in different directions. That gets back to David Crane's uh, pointing out about pensions, just that you, you pass initiatives, you pass tax increases, and you think, fine, this is going to solve the school problem, but it doesn't go necessarily to where you'd like it to go. So how does this all affect the student on the ground? What do we know about California? Are, 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 are the, is California finally turning around the fact that students' performance has been sliding in California relative to other parts of the country for, for, for decades? 
Is that now turning around? I'm going to throw a couple of stats at you, and I'll let the listener decide as to whether this is progress or not. So in California, we do testing. It's called smarter balance testing, and what that measures is both math and English proficiency, Paul. Uh, you start it with third graders. You do it three, four, five, six, seven. Uh, last year, only 48% of California third graders met the reading standard in this test. Now, you look at it, I think 48%, my God, not half of students in California can can read adequately. So what people, the progress, the progress advocates will say, well, wait a second, 54% of fourth graders are reading proficiently. So yay, we're going from 48% to 54%. Now you can say that's progress, or you can also say, well, wait a second, you still, you know, it's going from an F to a D plus maybe, so it's still not a good standard. You see progress, at least on the reading front. At the same time, though, you look at the math side of the coin, and whereas the escalator goes up on the reading side, Paul, it's the opposite. It goes down. Fourth grade, fifth grade, sixth grade, seventh grade, the elevator, the escalator is moving down, so not progress. So, Well, again, people say, well, that's because we have an uh, ever-increasing minority population in California in our school system, and so not enough resources are going to, to meet the needs of uh, disadvantaged students. Well, do you think that's true? Well, um, I don't think that's the whole story, no. Right. Because if you look at the white uh, segment of the population, you can see the test scores Correct. don't look very good for, for white students either. Right. So I think you just hit upon a key phrase, Paul, the whole story. This requires a larger scale, comprehensive conversation in Sacramento, a real come to Jesus, sit down, and talking about what is right and what's wrong about schools in California. But here's the problem, Paul. It's a one-way street in Sacramento. It's one mindset, and that mindset's not open to a broader conversation about this. Well, what would you do, Bill? What would be the three things you would do if you were to shake up the educational system in California? Uh, the first thing I would do is I would have to... Um, going to say defang, but I would have to somehow lessen the union's grip on uh, on politics in, in Sacramento. I know that sounds like the predictable Republican knee-jerk approach to it, but it's true. There's just too much influence. Um, so I would, in terms of dues, in terms of the ways they can control elections, I would just try to find a way to loosen their grip on it, number one. Secondly, I would have to go address the pension problem, because simply you can't keep pour, you can't keep pouring money into something, Paul. If there's a gigantic hole at the bottom <laughs> bottom of the vessel, just money just go then money goes in and money goes right out. So you have to address that. That's number two. And then third, I would look and again I'm going to sound like a very kind of knee jerk reactionary here. I have to look at choice and I have to look at competition. So that means charters. That means that means maybe vouchers. If you want to try vouchers in California, that's done horribly by the way in election California. But more competition. Well, thank you, Bill, for joining me on the Education Exchange. I've been speaking with Bill Whalen, a research associate at the uh, Hoover Institution at Stanford University in California. Uh, Bill Whalen is an expert on California politics, as he's demonstrated in this conversation. So uh, thank you, Bill, for joining me on the Education Exchange. Thank you, Paul. And I do a podcast for Hoover called Area 45, and I've had you on it before, and I hope to have you on it again soon. Well, thank you for the invitation, and uh, thank you, listeners, uh, for joining me on the Education Exchange. We release podcasts Monday at noon Eastern Time. Thank you. <laughs>